Well, Reed, I want to start with a little bit of context setting, actually, and this is going to be a fun one. And it's like you know, you've before um, championed the European tech ecosystem. You led the investment in entrepreneur first. Where does the love for Europe come from, Reed? Uh, from a couple of levels, not just I went and studied at Oxford, but the reason I got to Oxford is that my kind of ethos sensibility is kind of a transatlantic sensibility. That many culture, philosophy, you know, kind of a perspective in the world. You know, in kind of my ideal future universe, you would pick some of Europe and some of the U.S. And then, of course, look, there's things to learn from all great cultures, you know, China and India and Africa and everything else. And, and so that'd be great. But from a personal raised point of view, from the books that I was reading, I'm somewhat transatlantic. And like going through Europe has been a goal every year, minus the pandemic year. Well, listen, I cannot wait for you to come back. Can I ask, it's too intriguing, what would you pick from Europe? When you look at the, you know, the asset base that we have in terms of our behaviors, our cultures, what would you pick and be like, we'd love to have more of that in the Valley? Uh, well, one, uh, there's kind of a multiculturalism because all these cultures are close to each other. So there's an understanding of diversity of perspective. Uh, that leads to kind of a humanism depth right, which is kind of this question about like different values and how they dialogue and how they get there. There's not like one value for everybody as much as there's kind of a set, a, a set of cultures in dialogue. There's a question about the importance of other aspects of humanity, you know, kind of art, you know, kind of a, the, the pattern of culture, which sometimes is as simple as, hey, you know, which beer do you like at the pub? <laughs> right? but, but like, you know, like that kind of thing, which I think really adds a lot of texture to human life. And I think that's one of the things that, um, at least in the US, I would like to see a lot more of here. No, listen, I'm totally with you. And uh, I'm more of a cocktail man, personally, but uh, I'm totally with you there. Can I ask you, you've seen the development of the Valley as an ecosystem over the last two years, almost like no one else has done really. And so when we think about that and what it takes to build a successful tech ecosystem, what do you think are like the foundational ingredients for a really robust tech ecosystem? And I guess that they're ones that are a little bit less obvious. So one of the things that caused me to actually um, uh, write Blitzscaling was that I was actually on a panel in London with another Silicon Valley person who was saying, well, look, the real thing that the secret to Silicon Valley is that we don't have a fear of failure. Um, and so, you know, you really just need to have that cultural element and then you'll be succeeding. And I was like, well, actually, in fact, it's true that you need to have an ability to take shots on goal, have a safety net in order to fail from, but it isn't just a culture. It isn't like a, the people in Silicon Valley have courage and other people don't because they're fearful of failing. It's the fact that there's a whole system that economically works uh, in terms of a network. But part of that, by the way, is, is in Silicon Valley, if you can do a startup and you fail, like there's tons of companies that want to hire you, right? There's tons of plan B economic opportunity. And that that's really important for the rational take the shot, right? And, and try to go be an entrepreneur. So it isn't like, oh, we're, we're, we're more courageous than your average bear. Uh, it, it's actually, in fact, no, we're, we're living in a system which both has a network to amplify us, all the traditional things of, you know, venture capital and, and tech companies and tech universities and, and a positive immigration policy and all the things that people have, have very intelligently commented on about what creates entrepreneurial ecosystems. But it's also a set of kind of these, the patterns by which not just the plan A of trying the startup works, but the plan B of working, of getting a job or trying another company or all that, all of that works too. And then part of it is that the, that the, what grows in the network over time is that Silicon Valley is a learning network. 
uh, people learn from each other all the time. And that learning, which, you know, you can use in a kind of a kind of classically coined term, coopetition, right, where we're both competing really intensely, but we're also like sharing information about how to do like you completely wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, in the Valley, a person from Google and a person from Microsoft, who both are in charge of small business for their things, talking to each other about like, what does a small business market look like and how to do them? They're not revealing each other's secret plans, but they're talking about what they learned from like, what is Amazon doing? And, and the other kinds of things because of upping the game. And those are the, some of the things that I think are very important for actually making these ecosystems work. I'm too interested. This is probably quite a loaded one. So forgive me for this. You said there about plan B and having that um, kind of landing pad in some respects. Governments in Europe are a lot more um, involved in a lot of respects. You know, we have in the UK the BBB, which funds a lot of venture funds. In France, I mean, I think you know they pay you for about five years once you lose your job. Um, like, how do you think about government intervention in terms of financing that ecosystem and providing that safety pad? Um, I think. So let's see. There's a lot of complexity in government inter- intervention. I do actually do think that having a safety pad is what allows you to have increased risk, which allows you to rationally uh, do higher risk things, including like starting companies, joining early stage companies and so forth. And so creating a kind of a trampoline, you know, kind of a safety net is actually, in fact, actually, I think a good thing. And I think if governments can do it in a good way, which I'm not skeptical of, I think that's a good thing. And I, you know, there's some people in the entrepreneurial says, no, no, you have to have this total fear that you're going to go splat on the ground in order to really motivate you to go the extra mile. I think it's inhuman. And I think it's distracting. I actually think everyone wants to succeed. And the fact that simply falling into the net is something nobody really wants. And so I think that's, that's okay. I think that that net, however provided social security, other kinds of things is good to do. Now, the complexity in government is that government frequently doesn't get the, um, uh, that the innovation network is a distributed network with, um, it's not centrally planned. It's not a bureaucracy. It's, it's the, what is the weird person, you know, uh, she or him over there who has come up with this really interesting idea and is trying this new thing and you should let them try it. <laughs> right? Like, look, it made me go, well, but wait a minute, that might go wrong. You're like, okay, yeah, but let's see what could go right too. And kind of play that out. And too often, within a governmental mindset, it's like, well, but everything should be like like a yearly budget and should be planned and there should be no unexpected surprises. And so then you're like, yeah, but that's not how an innovation network works. That's not how the, the disruption works. And if you try to get there, you wipe out tons of the interesting innovation and in doing it. So, so I think there are ways that governments can participate in really good ways. Like for example, you know, a classic one that, is, that Silicon Valley has to be reminded of is the internet came about because of DARPA, the, 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 all this set of technologies and so forth. It came about because of government R&D and, and creating a basis for making all this stuff happen. So there's lots of really important roles, but it's like some things really important and some things really important for governments not to impose the kind of a centralized mindset on the whole thing. And Europe has a bit of that centralized mindset problem. I mean, speaking of centralized mindset problems, you know, regulatory-wise, that is kind of one of the first things that come to my mind. How do you think about the ways in which regulation helps and then hinders tech startup ecosystems, maybe also applied to Europe? Yep. So hinders is what I was already talking about a little bit, which is if you say, hey, um, uh, you know, kind of we're, we're not going to allow fast-moving changes, like, for example, well, once you hire someone, you have to give them six months' notice or... 
or you're not allowed to take risks uh, and go, well, okay, you did something with data that maybe we don't like and we're going to change over time, but you have to ask for permission versus forgiveness on a broad range of things. And those are all in the hindrance category. I think among the things that are in the European potential help category is uh, actually, in fact, creating standards that everyone works on um, can be very good as long as the standards allow for the disruptive network, the distributed network innovation and and possible modification and change. Um, I think the safety net for, hey, you can go take a shot. There's a ton of technical talent within Europe in order to do this. And you say, well, how do we get those initial companies going and started? How do we how do we make that incentive? Maybe it's tax incentives. Maybe it's, hey, if you um, create a company that, you know, five years later has had you know, X jobs, right? There's certain things that kind of come about from that. And I think those kinds of things can be very good. I think that the, you know, part of the thing that I think is probably most central within the European context is a ton of very smart technical people. It's how do you enable that to, to run experiments, to try to build new companies? Um, and how do you make that happen? Like, how do you go, we want that, not we're going to mandate it, but we're going to create a space for it and an incentive for it. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges actually often in Europe that I see is like VCs constrain funding. And what I mean by that is they do rounds that are too small, so they don't allow for multiple iterations. So 12 months in when it didn't work, you've run out, the business is over. And in San Francisco, you have 36 months where, you know, you can test V2, V3, V4. I think that's a big difference. Can I ask you, and this is Maybe a bit of a, a, a spicy one, but I, I'm you know, trying for the debate. Um, in terms of like hype to reality, the US has come and said, hey, Europe is exciting now and we're all investing here. But transparently, there's only really Sequoia, GC, Bestman, a couple on the ground at all. You know, you've got EF as the investment. Do you think it's a little bit distorted in terms of hype to reality? And how do you think about the US now actively coming in on Europe? Well, I think you've got the balance right, which is I think that the U.S. venture ecosystem is now going, okay, well, we know there's a lot of talent. We know there's a really good market there. We know there's a bunch of sources of interesting ideas, and we'd like to participate. On the other hand, historically, the market's been much more fragmented than it claims to be, uh, fragmented because of you know, kind of different labor laws and different you know, kind of cultures and languages and all the rest. And so it's much harder to do than a singular market, like just saying global English, you yeah. know, kind of et cetera, which has been uh, part of that. And so I think, I think what you're seeing is, ooh, interesting, but we're experimenting, we're seeing. And I think there's different levels of experiment. Some put people on the ground and, and, and make efforts. And by the way, it goes all the way back to, you know, like Excel and Benchmark, which, you know, has now become Balderton now, were kind of ways of doing that. And, and I think everyone's now going, oh, we're, we're, it's the next wave of trying it. Now, one of the things, by the way, that you just said on the financing thing makes me think that there could be a good idea by which government could help, um, which is an idea that I pitched in the U.S. for various purposes, but I, a, a translocation of it could work in Europe, which is, um, say, for example, um, what you uh, did is you said, okay, what we want is we want European you know, employees within Europe as uh, something that we want uh, for these startups in uh, companies and growing companies, you know, blitz scaling, scaling companies. Well, one of the things that I, uh, I think a government can do is say, look, any venture firm that has professional LPs in the US that tends to be like universities and anything else that's been in operation for at least three years can draw on a side fund 
and the side fund can say, we will co-invest with you. If on exit, there's a bunch of, of kind of European jobs, then as opposed to paying back you know, fully to the LP, you pay extra money, like extra carry to the GPs and some extra juice to the LPs in the original fund. And so you could amplify the amount of capital with the incentives for the LPs and GPs and have a size of capital targeting kind of job growth. That could be a pattern by which you use a distributed network, not a centralized kind of planning regime, which doesn't really work in innovation, to have more capital available within all the, the venture firms and would have them actually, in fact, incented both as GPs and LPs to, to do an outcome like, for example, larger European tech companies. Can I ask, I love that as a model. How is that received in the US? I think I was pitching it, kind of call it a couple of years pre-Trump. Uh, and so they were like intrigued and starting to think about it. And then obviously Trump didn't do anything for governance. So there was no proactive thing to do anything um, other than, you know, kind of tweets and sowing discord. And so now is the time to go back and revisit it. Yeah, no, listen, I, I totally agree. We mentioned kind of funding kind of being a challenge in a lot of cases for European startups. When you think about kind of Europe's ability to build the next gen of massive, massive tech giants, what do you think are the other big challenges? Well, so um, I think that some of the challenges are, um, you know, generally speaking, saying that while we tend to have want to, want to have more of a planned society, so part of the European thing is we want to have more of a planned society, you have to allow for, call it refitting the plan, like play to size and scale, see what the pattern is that gets you there, right? Because by global competition, global competition within tech, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, Europeans, because of the last few decades, tend to be very focused on Silicon Valley. I tend to think China is actually, in fact, like if you ask Silicon Valley folks, they think that there's going to be a huge shift in technological paradigm to China given a variety of things. And so that, that it's gonna be difficult competition for Silicon Valley uh, to, it's certainly not gonna maintain its position. The question is how much in the balancing is Silicon, is it gonna be China, Silicon Valley or China, Silicon Valley? Like what is that play gonna look like? And so part of what you have to do is say, look, th it's a global space. How do we enable whatever the pattern is and make that happen and have the values and virtues and stuff we want, which isn't move slower, ask for permission, et cetera, et cetera, but it's go and then re-renovate, re, um, re uh, change. Say, well, we don't really like this particular use of data and we're gonna now try to move this shift around for that reason versus saying, data, you're not allowed to use it, <laughs> right? Without, you know, and it's like, well, okay, that's, the problem is, is, is all of that stuff is the furthest of the wild west is China. And so you need to be able to do those kinds of things in terms of, building the next generation of of scale and global impact tech companies. Yeah, no, and it's not, I totally agree with you. I mean, in terms of kind of building them, you know, and going back to the VC side, you know, we mentioned the VCs kind of who are coming to town and who are active on the ground. A lot of founders I, I, I you know, know and work with have the chance to work with US VCs early, Series A, Series B. How would you advise them on U.S. funds, taking U.S. money versus local money. How do you think about that advice in terms of local versus more global capital? So the, in the very earliest stages, it's very helpful to get partners who are working with you in an active way. For example, in, in, in our seeds and Series A's at Greylock, you're on the phone with the founder every week, right? Uh, it's not just the board meetings. It's, it's the what challenges are you doing? 
how you're trying to hire, which problem you're trying to solve, which experts do you need to talk to. So that's the most important thing. And that's one of the reasons why, especially early stage venture tends to be local. Now, that being said, you know, with Matt and Alice at, at EF, I do that with Zoom and, you know, and, and, and transatlantically, and so it can work. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that you need to have. And so that's the, that attribute is the top question and it will tend you to local, but it isn't local for local sake. It's for that, uh, the network of help that's very active that you want as a preference. And, and the fact is, if someone happens to be local, you can go by their offices, you know, you can have dinner with them every couple of weeks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then that tends to up that, but that, that's what you're looking for. So it isn't so much a choose local or choose transatlantic. Now, ultimately, you're going to want both expertise on local markets and the, in the things you're going and kind of global expertise. Like, What's going on in terms of what is the go-to-market patterns or growth patterns, um, uh, a, a capital that goes to scale, executive talent and the plan that, you know, that's part of the reason why, like in Blitzscaling, we say, look, here's how the game changes as you go to different levels of scale to understand is like, well, when we move from a 20-person organization to a 100-person organization, how does the internal running of the company work? How does the, the way that we're running our, our engagement with our customers, how does that change? And you need to have the expertise for that. And some of that expertise tends to live more globally at certain scales than in Europe. So getting some of that, that expertise in and some of that network in is, is very important. Can I ask, you mentioned that kind of the blitz scaling and, and scaling into different stages. I very often have calls with founders where they say, I don't know if I can scale into the next stage. I've never done it before. And I just don't know. How do you advise founders on that insecurity and self-doubt when it comes to making that transition to scale to the next phase? So a couple of things. Uh, one is, uh, this is part of the reason why to build a network, right? Because go ask people in the network. Don't don't treat it as, is it a confidence issue? It's a little bit like that. It's not a fear of failure issue. It's a, okay, let me be uh, intelligent and learning and focused and intentional about like, what is it to be ready? Because by the way, no one's 100% ready. For example, when we were growing PayPal, when I was part of the, the kind of founding team and everything else, we didn't even know what a chargeback on a credit card was. So there's, there's always places where you go, well, an entrepreneurial journey, you learn along the way. That's one of the reasons I say you jump off a cliff and assemble an airplane on the way down because you're like, oh, well, let's figure it out. But the question is, you can be more than just, oh, just you'll make it work and jump. It's like, no, we'll, we'll learn and be saying, okay, what are the things I need to know? What are the things I need to be adjusting to? Have a default to go, a default to action, a default to, look, we're gonna, we're gonna go run at the scale and we're gonna learn it as we go, but try to make it so that you're on target much more often because you've brought the network in. And that's part of like what investing does. That's part of like, who else has kind of solved problems like this? Can I talk to them? Um, you know, uh, what are the, the key challenges to keep in mind? Like frequently as a board member, as an investor, um, you know, what I do is I say, look, here are three challenges you're going to run into, right? And in terms of running into those challenges, you know, here's some thoughts about how to do it. But by the way, in your new entrepreneurial journey, you may solve them in a different way. You may need to solve them in a different way. So the real thing is keeping track of what the challenge might look like and then knowing that that's what you're going to solve and then bringing resources to bear to solve it. I, I do want to finish there, Reed, with the final one. is like, if we have this conversation in 10 years' time, going back to the European tech ecosystem side, what do you think the European tech ecosystem will look like in 10 years' time? How do you foresee its evolution? And what are your thoughts on it? 
So these kind of predictions are always the kind of things that you always look dumb in 10 years uh, because the way that I usually think of the future is it's sooner and stranger than you think. So like, for example, in the 1950s, people were like, oh, we're going to have flying cars. And okay, we're now working on flying cars. But what we had was like the internet <laughs> and other kinds of things. So it's like, well, it's, it's different and still magical and wonderful in kind of different ways. And so that, that's usually these kinds of predictions. Now, what I think you will see is I do think you will see a, a strong growth in the European tech ecosystem, not just because of folks like Entrepreneur First and others um, that are operating there and, you know, Station F and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. I actually think that there's a recognition that that's really important in terms of how you invent the future. And it's not just in the large companies themselves being innovative. And so I think you will see a lot more. Now, the question is, is I think you will naturally see that in the patterns where there is like competitive edge to Europe. So Skype couldn't have been founded anywhere other than Europe. And that's partially because all these different countries and the cross-border phoning and all the rest like led to the, there just wouldn't, couldn't be anywhere else. And by the way, same thing for Spotify, because you couldn't have run the experiment in a smaller country gone, okay, it works. And now it's really big. So the question is, and it's not just the fragmented to, 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 to global scale, but like what are the set of areas that within the unique set of European attributes will also create those and how do you lean in and double down on those? And I don't necessarily have that perspective because I'm, you know, kind of like deeply ensconced in what does the Silicon Valley game look like? And the European game will learn from the Silicon Valley game, learn from the China game, but will also build its own game. Listen, Reed, I cannot wait to spend more time with you in London. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. And this was so much fun, Steve. Likewise, and Harry, it's always fun to do this. As you know, anytime you say, hey, let's do this, I'm like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs>